Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. You know the drill, write a review, share with a friend, help us grow. Today in the booth, we got Danielle Davis. She's a field advisor for the National Network for Safe Communities in New York City. Uh, we get into gender-based violence, the history of policing, and gender double standards when it comes to policing today. Kick back and listen up. to have Daniil Davis here on with us. Uh, and obviously for anyone living under, hasn't been living under a rock, uh, this has been a, one of the more embattled weeks of a shit show past four years almost. Um, obviously because of Jacob Blake um, and his almost murder, um, you know, what's been happening just generally in Kenosha, you know, what's happening in Portland. Uh, and of course it was also the RNC week, which there's a lot to talk about, but we're obviously going to have to jump into policing here. But before we do all that, Danielle is over at the National Network for Safe Communities. She's with their Intimate Partner Violence and Intervention. God, that is a mouthful um, program. And she's been on kind of a bit of the, what do you call it, the circuit, talking about policing, policing 101, and just better understanding things. And I, I can't imagine a better person to have on right now, especially in this time where there's just a lot of conjecture, no matter where you are, some people are on defund, but what does defund mean? Some people are all the way on abolition. But you know, I think the one thing that seemingly shouldn't be that complicated, but what is almost even the definition of what a police officer is supposed to be doing. So anyway, Thank you for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we were making some jokes before we started because uh, you started at Bain, which is obviously like, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, a, a very, uh, you know, uh, talked about place because of Mitt Romney. And you were in Chicago. You were originally from Florida. You went to Penn. Um, but what brought you to New York and, you know, with this program that you're working on? So I knew that even well before I even headed into consulting, ultimately what I wanted to do was work in the space of policy and advocacy. And I always thought that that would be as a lawyer. Uh, weirdly, my first case at Bain got me interested in operational improvement and operational strategy. And I liked, I really, really liked the feeling of being in the field, working hand in hand, with the clients almost being embedded in their work and working together towards a shared goal, towards some practical real-time solutions on the ground. And it felt, in many ways, it felt really rewarding uh, to see their strategic goals being met and to also just see them happier. People like their job or take pride in their job or, or anything, they want it to run more smoothly, right? So. All of that kind of got me a sense of wanting to work in this space, but not necessarily for an industrial company, but for causes about which I was really passionate. And around the same time, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was launched. And this had tremendous impact. I mean, growing up in Florida, I child of Jamaican immigrants who grew up in a really strong, close-knit Jamaican community. 
So you have a different sort of experience with blackness. You're black in America and you have many of the experiences of being black in America, but it's a fundamentally different experience from like an African-American experience. It wasn't really until I honestly went to Penn that I started to see more of uh, an African-American experience. And so all of these things were were really coming together. And my background had been in gender-based violence and reproductive rights and uh, just a lot of gender issues. Um, and even when I was at Bain, I was volunteering as a rape crisis counselor at the YWCA. And all of that thinking and all of those experiences got me in a place where I wanted to see how I could make practical change on the ground in the same way that I did with industrial companies towards a cause about which I was really passionate. So gender-based violence and also starting to just see and connect my black experiences to African-American experiences and what was happening uh, around the country at large and to address some of the clear harm and mistrust. I didn't have that language at the time, but having worked in this space for several years now, that's really what it was, harm and mistrust that I could see. And I wanted to address it and I felt like I had a way uniquely to do it. New York, could, work could have been done, and I think this work needs to be done all over. New York is more for resources. There's a lot of attention to philanthropy here and connection to uh, government policy work and all of that, but also just personal reasons. I Most of my friends <laughs> were in New York City. I used to spend so much time here when I lived in Chicago that people thought I already lived here. So it's mostly a matter of time before I moved to New York. But I'm so glad that I did because finding this work is really just how all of those different threads I was mentioning with upbringing and the kind of work that I was doing and personal interest just intersected. I want to back up just one one thing. Does being a history major set your path to working on social things? Did that do it? <laughs> uh, it doesn't have to. But for me, I think so. Funnily enough, my first, I always liked history. I liked school, but I was more of an English kid. It wasn't until my eighth grade history teacher spent, he just threw the entire curriculum out of the window. It's a really good thing we didn't have a standardized test that year. We all would have failed it. But the most important thing he did was he taught us that everything else that we'd learned up to that point was BS. And he taught us to challenge our assumptions, challenge the way that we think, recognize that history is written by the victors and you're not always getting the full picture just by reading a book, that everyone has a bent, everyone has an angle, there's always a new way to look at things. And we're like 13 years old, <laughs> just sitting in this class, learning, honestly, one of the most valuable lessons I have ever learned. That's what got me interested in history. So I think I approached it from a lens of wanting to see these different perspectives, kind of approaching realities more from this kaleidoscopic view, that there's so many different perspectives and experiences that people bring and wanting to get a bit to the bottom of that. And intellectual history, which sounds incredibly pretentious and I promise actually isn't, depending on your perspective, uh, <laughs> was a chance to really just study the way that people think, why they think the way they do, how they think the way they do, uh, what events in politics, economics, 
natural history, whatever affected that, and also how their thinking in turn affected some of those other events. So that's, I think, that sort of mindset is really what got me on on this path. So got it. So I just got to shout out to history. History does it again. History produced another really important person, which it's is you, Danielle, to, to, to do, <laughs> you know, the, the work that you're doing. Very important. Thank you, history. Um, so after Bain, and you mentioned you had been volunteering on the side while working at Bain at the YWCA um, for rape victims, and then moving into your current company, focusing on gender violence specifically. Why gender violence? Uh, so I started with gender-based violence issues as an undergrad, and I think it was the Vagina Monologues, actually. I auditioned for the cast, and I joined it. And all of our meetings at the beginning, we would get to some of the actual theatrical elements of rehearsal, but a lot of our meetings at the beginning were just to discuss gender issues affecting us, uh, personally, affecting our campus, affecting broader society. And those conversations got me thinking and connected with some of the work I was doing at the same time at Planned Parenthood. It got me thinking about different forms of violence and reproductive rights, some of the intrusions into reproductive rights and some of the restrictions on reproductive rights are actually characterized by, I'm going to mess up his title, legal theorist, historian, definitely in the legal profession, legal academia. But David Soloff uh, called it decisional interference and theorized that as a form of violence. So with these conversations happening about sexual assault, with vagina monologues, and then these other conversations, more theoretical and academic, but also practical, because I was still, I was volunteering at Planned Parenthood at the time too, got me thinking about violence in a lot of different nuanced ways, the physical manifestations, violence of the individual, violence of the state. And I wanted to explore that. I think being on a college campus, it's honestly, this violence is so, it's so ubiquitous in so many ways. Uh, just some, like, even in, and I, my sorority was, uh, it was a great sorority, but I remember even just the fact that none of us could have parties in our own houses because of these archaic rules about uh, just alcohol being served where women lived and that kind of thing. And how it just reinforced this power dynamic where everyone is expected to go to frat houses where obviously drinking is taking place, where some degree of what did they call it? Cordial relations or being friendly is supposed to happen. Isn't that like the brothel rule, by the way? It like is. Too many. It is. Yeah. Right, which is crazy. And different states have variations on it. Like in Missouri, I remember touring Wash U and we were told at the time that they couldn't have sorority houses, period, because six or more unrelated women living together in a house was a brothel. So if the Golden Girls had invited like two more friends, would have been banned in Missouri. Sounds like a day uh, in the life of Mike Pence. <laughs> oh my gosh. You just have to like block that house off the map. It would be, <laughs> you'd not be able to look at it. Uh, but yeah, Pennsylvania had its own variation of it. So all these forms of violence are here. And a lot of times you're just teenagers still, right? Because your first few years of college, you are still a teenager. And 
don't even necessarily see it that way. It's only reflecting back. You're like, wait a second. So that time when said, ew, no, get off and had to push and then laughed about it the next day. That was not okay. That was not acceptable. And way too many people in college go through this. And I have to put a trigger warning before even getting into some of it. But then for some people, I might not have to because they don't even see it as violence. And that's a personal and sometimes a personal calculation, but it's also definitely influenced by society. So I was always really, really committed to, to exploring this and uh, at a conceptual level, academic, socially, personal experiences. I was like, no, can't, I, ca I cannot not do something about this. It's, it's interesting. My brain, I feel like, went in so many different directions as you were talking. Because it's like one part I was thinking of like domestic abuse. And then I was wondering, you know, what percentage of like the police force is male and even the part that's not obviously just the, the institutions of what was created. And then I was also even thinking about, I, I've heard all these Republican talking heads or even Republican friends I know who would be like, oh, well, it's only this amount of, you know, black people that are killed, you know, by police. It's not that much. And what are the numbers they're saying are right or they're really that low or whatever it is. I think a big missing component always is, is, well, how many people had a gun put to their head? How many people have been harassed? How many people have all these other yeah. things that create the, this like existential trauma? And in the same way of that domestic abuse, you know, a lot of, you know, marginalized communities have basically had that same kind of relationship with the cops. Yes, it wasn't always death it, on a percentage basis. Maybe it is somewhat small. But the totality of the actual abuse that rings, I mean, that could be in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, if not more. And that's the number we won't, we really can't, you know, probably track, or maybe people are tracking and you can correct me, but uh, it's really interesting how your work has connected on these two things, but I'm sure you see them as probably one of the same. I do, honestly. And we're fortunate to have a lot of language and frameworks from the gender-based violence movement to talk about trauma, but by no means is trauma exclusive to people who've been sexually assaulted or abused by a partner. Uh, there, there's a movement in our work, and one of the reasons I love our group violence intervention too, is because it addresses the trauma in communities that one, experience high levels of violence overall at a community level, uh, two of people who are directly victimized, and three of the people who then perpetrate that violence. Violence in any community, this is, this is backed up by so much data in the literature, but violence, period, the most serious and chronic violence is driven by a very, very, very small number, very small. Uh, we look at group violence. I was actually just reviewing some of the data today, we're talking about maybe half a percentage of the overall population in a city was involved in nearly three quarters of the homicides and shootings were all group related. It's a very, very, very small population, very tight network, but there's a lot of trauma there. There's, and this actually goes to some of what we're seeing today with increases in violence and, and the protests there are many different contributing factors to violence, but one of them is a lack of police legitimacy. And when there are low levels of police legitimacy, 
people, especially in communities that are experiencing the highest levels of violence, often have the lowest levels of trust in police, are the least likely to want to work with law enforcement together in an interest of public safety because they don't trust them. They don't trust them to be fair. They don't trust them to have their best interests at heart. They don't necessarily trust them to actually be effective. And so oftentimes they'll take matters into their own hands. We think about Sir Robert Peel and the original nine principles of ethical policing from back in uh, establishing the London Metropolitan Police in the 1820s. The whole idea of policing is that they're supposed to secure willing cooperation of the public. The public are the police, police are the public, et cetera. If people don't actually feel that they can trust the resources that are out there to protect order and against violence, then yeah, they're going to address it themselves. And another thing that is that much harder and ties in with intimate partner violence and group violence and so many different forms is that when victims of violence cannot trust protective resources, police, prosecutors, social services at times, let's not act like they can't be racist too. Uh, When they can't trust those systems, they don't seek help. And being a victim of violence Literally, just being a victim of violence dramatically increases your risk of future victimization. It's a sick, awful cycle, and there's no incentive for people who are in certain communities to want to work with with any protective services. And I say protective services to you know just broadly encompass police, criminal justice system, even social services. But a lot of these systems are not really seen as legitimate, and that causes a lot of harm and it leaves a lot of trauma not dealt with. Daniel, can you talk a bit about since working in this this world and really getting into the weeds of all of the, you know, the legislation and and the laws and the institutions, can you, you know, because everybody is always, their ears perk up at the burning fires that are, you know, abortion, sexual violence and rape, like those are kind of the burning fires everybody can get behind. But I think it is the small sort of the spectrum of all of those little gender-based double standards in the laws and the institutions that all of this other violence stands upon. Like that is the foundation that all this other stuff uh, stands um, upon. Can you talk a bit about those double standards that you see in policy, in legislation that uh, is gender-based that you've learned um, that, that go under the radar? Uh, Overall, in policy, I think that would be, there'd be a bit too much to to get into is not necessarily my specific expertise, but at least in terms of policing and public safety practices, there are a lot that people are still trying to work through to this day. Uh, Just throwing some examples out there and feel free to direct me uh, depending on how specific you want to get or uh, any specific area to cover, but police training, right? There have been, there's one podcast, um, it's called Criminal Injustice, um, and they talk about women in law enforcement. And I'm not necessarily subscribing to biological essentialism here, but overall women, whether innately or are socialized, to be a little less aggressive and trigger prone and tend to overall uh, show more strength in the skill sets that are honestly associated with the majority of policing. A lot of people don't know the majority of cops never actually fire a weapon 
period in the line of duty. So you're dealing with a lot of skill sets that are not necessarily the kinds of things you're going to see on Law and Order or CSI. It's just about actually working with people. So going back to that uh, gender double standard in police training, sometimes the physical tests that are required are biased against women. And for no good reason, because I'm sure we've all met and dealt with and, and worked with law enforcement who was not necessarily still like running track or <laughs> like a lot of us physically change over time doesn't necessarily mean that we're no longer effective at our job. And just because somebody male or female may no longer be in the same physical shape that they were when they were younger doesn't mean that they can't still keep communities safe. So that gender bias is one of the ways in which a lot of women are pushed out. And that's not even to get into the harassment that female recruits will face in the academy. That's, that's, a, that's another situation. I'm just even talking about what's actually codified. Uh, but these rules about uh, physical expectations, they don't actually speak to what is useful for good policing. We still have to define each community really should be able to define for themselves what good policing is and what they need from their police department in order to feel safe. But demonstrably, just looking at uh, a lot of the main issues that are raised regarding use of force and also regarding just police community relations, it does not make sense to have tests that disproportionately exclude or intend to exclude women. So that's just one example that I can speak to and some of the disparities that have existed in responding to crimes of gender-based violence. I don't know if you want to get me started on that. <laughs> so I'm happy to shift. I do. I do actually. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Whew. Well, uh, so I've actually been reading a really good book lately by Lee Goodmark. It's uh, published two years ago called Decriminalizing Domestic Violence. And she walks through the early history of the response to domestic violence. And it was not, we're talking 70s, 80s, that's when we started to see more of a battered women's movement in the sense that there has been intimate partner violence since there have been partners, especially since there has been patriarchy to reinforce uh, some of the the norms that, uh, that perpetuate this kind of violence. Uh, but in terms of actually responding to it in ways that are protecting women, 70s and 80s, we saw a rise in shelters and social services, but really started to see a shift in the late 80s and early 90s towards criminalization. With the, and the goal here was one, to address the harm that police departments and the criminal justice system more broadly simply just weren't responding to intimate partner violence. Uh, they would show up at the door and largely the policy was to walk it off. And this isn't just coming from the book. I've also been in uh, trainings with the International Association of Chiefs of Police. It's just rec recognized, documented facts. We, we know this. And because there was such a lackluster response, there, there was a case of a woman being beaten, stomped in front of law enforcement, right in front of them. And it wasn't until uh, he circled back to the car where the police were that they actually finally arrested him, even after he threw their child in common on top of her. Very disgusting story. 
But because of this lackluster response, a lot of advocates were like, well, do your job. The whole point, this is violence, this is assault, take it seriously. The thing is there were already laws to address violence, but nothing specifically about intimate partners. So domestic violence really came into criminal justice system with full force with the Violence Against Women Act uh, passed in 1994, which as many know was also loose with the crime bill. Uh, 1994 as well. Whoa, mind blown. My mind is blown. I didn't know. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's uh, it's important insight. And I think that the intentions were, were very strong, which is to encourage the guardians of public safety, the people who were charged with that at the time, primarily police departments. There's a growing conversation about expanding uh, that, but the time police departments and the criminal justice system and having them take this as seriously as possible. So investing in training to help them recognize signs of intimate partner violence and how to respond, how to conduct investigations, how to write reports, how to collect evidence, uh, how to have successful victimless prosecution, they'll call it. A lot of survivors don't want to come forward because of many reasons. Uh, One, they don't necessarily want their partner to actually be locked up or harmed. They might just simply want the violence to stop. Another, they may fear retaliation from that partner and going forward. Another, they may not trust the criminal justice system or any of the systems involved in the response to actually keep them safe. And that goes back to the legitimacy point that I was making earlier. It's all of those uh, different elements considered. The response, although I think in many ways well-intended, has not garnered the type of transformation that we hope to see. And there, I, I don't want to knock a lot of the really great work from special victims units and DA's offices and in police departments across the country. They are tasked with, uh, each week I get on the phone with, uh, with different cities and we just walk through their incidents. And it's horrifying. That's why, you know, my friends will always judge, why do you just want to watch comedy at the end of the day? It's like, well, I talked about strangulation and murder and assault for like three hours. So I'm kind of good. Just, you know, pass me the Comedy Central. There's a lot of really important work that is happening in the criminal justice system, but it can't get to everything. And all of the harms and mistrust that we were talking about earlier with the criminal justice system and with policing, absolutely impact survivors and absolutely impact their experiences when they engage with those systems and their willingness to engage with those systems, right? Like survivors are not some sort of weird separate entity that exists in a vacuum. They are people who come from all walks of life, who come from all different races and ethnicities, who are bringing with them experiences, perhaps fears of coordination with ICE that happens sometimes with local law enforcement. They may be bringing the memories of the harassment that LGBTQ plus communities experienced before Stonewall and honestly, even after, right? So it's the concept of intersectionality. Survivors are coming from all different communities and all those communities experiences, harms and mistrust at the hands of the criminal justice system and at the hands of, of law enforcement affect how they are treated They're not always necessarily treated fairly. Sometimes victims are assumed to be aggressors, especially when their skin is of a darker hue, if you will. And their willingness to just work with these systems at all. And that's the saddest part, because as I mentioned before, 
simply being a victim increases your likelihood of being victimized again. So you have people who are the most vulnerable who feel like they can't turn anywhere for help. That is very, very real. And by the way, that, that comment about the Comedy Central, we're, we're going to, <laughs> you don't get a Comedy Central reprieve, unfortunately, with us, because we're just going to keep going down this as well. But that, that sentiment is very real. And <laughs> people do need some self-care around this because it isn't healthy to talk about this stuff all the time. And as you know, we're friends with Leon Ford. You know, I, I did a short film with him. He's been on the news a bunch the past week because his story was very similar to Jacob Blake's. And, you know, hearing people talking about the rationalization as to, you know, well, Jacob was, you know, was fighting back and he had a knife and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you can't fight a cop. You know, there's a right and wrong way to be arrested. And it's like, you know, seeing Leon's story, you know, knowing, or knowing Leon, seeing Jacob's story, it, it's so tough. And it's like, I'm curious when you hear this, I, I know we, we can't separate race from any of these things, but just on a simple, just like, this is actually what the police are supposed to be doing. The police aren't supposed to be, it, it, there's never a moment where if they're even wrestling with someone <laughs> that they should be shooting and killing them. Like where, where did we get this disconnect on what a police officer is supposed to be doing within their job description? There's a lack of empathy for the people who've been victimized the most by police violence will stop. And that lack of empathy connects to embedded and sometimes unconscious internalizations and structures of white supremacy, of patriarchy, of heteronormativity. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of isms and a lot of axes of discrimination and marginalization that all converge in a way to honestly numb the empathy that we have for people who've been victims of violence. And it's really unfortunate, honestly, because, and I said victims of violence specifically because I actually, I meant that as more broadly than just police violence. The same thing that happens with gender-based violence, the interrogation, what were you wearing? What were you drinking? What did you say to him to make him mad? and being very heteronormative with that language there, but that's the quoting from uh, people in the criminal justice system and even society at large, right? This, that could be happening in an interrogation room in a police department. It could be happening on a Facebook page. Unfortunately, that's the way that people think. And it's that at a broader level is more concerning, but specifically in this context of victims of police violence, there is no restriction on race, gender, creed, et cetera, to be a victim of violence and excessive force. We know that people, of course, of all races, ethnicities, backgrounds, have experienced this. Uh, we can just point it back to issues of power, issues of misalignment with the role of policing, and whether the goal, again, going back to Sir Robert Peel, is to secure the willing cooperation of the public and earn that trust, or to simply be granted authority and respect de facto without any sort of challenge, right? So yes, many different kinds of people are affected, but it is without question that the numbers are horribly disproportionate. 
So when we have that in mind, and there's already a bit of a disconnect between just at a foundational conceptual level with authority and what that should mean in a policing context, right? Then you consider the fact that the overwhelming majority, at least by proportion, of people who are impacted by this kinds of violence are already the same people who are marginalized by every other system, by housing, by education, by voting, by economics. When you, when you consider that, it absolutely makes sense that, of course, we're going to blame the victim because we've never really looked out for those victims in any other context. So it's not a, a heartwarming answer, unfortunately, but I don't think there is any positive response to seeing that that lack of empathy and, and how it plays out. And I think we can absolutely come out of it, but that's all, and that's a lot of the work that I do in, in reconciliation. It's not bringing together two parties who were just having a little bit of a spat, not at all. It's recognizing that these two groups have never been together and have never really been at the same table. And that's largely because marginalized communities were excluded from these conversations deliberately. And public safety was not something that was done in their best interest. It was done to them to cause harm. Modern police departments in the US, especially in the South, emerged from slave patrols. They were then tasked a few years later with enforcing Jim Crow. And even though I do believe that the majority of people who get up in the morning and put on the uniform do intend to do good for their community, they're not recognizing that harm and the impact that that has, then they may inadvertently end up perpetuating it. So a lot of the work that I do is with really talented and dedicated professionals uh, across the country to recognize and address that harm. Because what happened in history still very much lives in the present. We see it every day. If it wasn't last month with Kenosha in May, it was in Minneapolis. And in March, it was in Louisville. And that's just this year, and it's not even the full list. Do you think, Danielle, do you, do you think that we can ever achieve Sir Robert Peel's law enforcement standard, given our very specific history with our police force tracing its origins in slave patrols 200 years before Sir Robert Peel's law enforcement act or, or, or him sort of, I mean, that's in the UK, right? A very different nation that was built differently that has its own muscle memory and dna do you think we can ever free ourselves from our muscle memory in terms of how this nation was was built i me as as a, as a skeptic I, I think unfortunately not but you are much closer to the work than i am i'm just an outside skeptic you know what do you think skepticism is a valid perspective so there are a lot of people in who are very close to the work like me who are also skeptics. And that is fair and that's valid. I, in my work and in my experiences, I have found cause to hope for and to work towards a different approach. But I do want to be very clear that we cannot get where we need to be without dramatic transformation and not just how we police, but how we think about public safety, period. When you have that history of policing being something that is done in the interests of a very select and powerful few to the direct and intentional detriment 
of many communities uh, requires a shift overall in how we think. And I think that every, every culture, every group, every community, they want to feel safe. They do. And they'll set up some kind of structure to ensure that. So a lot of restorative justice work borrows from First Nations traditions and indigenous practice to focus on the individual harm that was perpetuated, whether it was stealing, whether it was violence, whatever it was, focusing on that individual harm and having the party who experienced harm be willing to come to the table with the party who caused the harm and ensuring accountability on all of those sides, accountability for the harm that took place, naming it, and committing to reparative action to change. I think that when it comes to institutions, that process can happen, but it's not an easy one. And in, at an institutional level, that looks a lot like the reconciliation work that I do with police and communities and more broadly now, especially to think about bringing in other public safety stakeholders. But ultimately, what we're trying to do, again, it's not just to reconcile two parties after a disagreement. It's fundamentally to change the way that, that people work with each other and see each other and to build relationships based on trust and, and empathy and understanding. And it's hard work, but I've seen it seen it in practice and I do believe in it that when sustained as a, as a strategy, if we commit to naming the harm that has been done, acknowledging it, listening to each other, and actually putting in the work to change the policies and practices that have caused harm, I do believe that we can see the kind of change we want because it's both conceptual and in practice. But do I believe that a few more hours of training in isolation are going to suddenly fix things? No. We have, oh gosh, the trainings that we have done, the training that I have seen, and I've met and worked with some fabulous trainers. It's not enough. If we're going to change something that is flawed and carries really difficult and, and damaging uh, experiences and histories uh, at its core, then we have to change that core. And in some ways, I kind of see it as a restoration of what was intended by Sir Robert Peel's principles of ethical policing. There are nine of them. I'm not going to rattle all of them off, but <laughs> you can feel free to check them out. But you would think that that was written by like a Black Lives Matter activist. No, it was written by a white man in 1829 <laughs> in the UK. But unfortunately, that vision was not realized for everyone. So in order to see the kind of change that we want, we have to redefine how we have to redefine communities and recognize that public safety is not just in the hands of the wealthy, of the white, of the men with property, as it was back then, but that it's in the hands of all of us and that there's a lot of harm that needs to be addressed that was done specifically to communities of color, to women, to LGBTQ folks, to immigrants. That needs to be reckoned with. So I do have faith that we can do it, but we have to really be willing to put in the work to see it happen. So are you not for uh, abolition? You're more for a, a more full, I, I feel like 
there's the abolition crowd, which is full teardown. And there's, and parts of the defund crowd are there too. But I think most of the defund crowd is a severe literal defunding, but with some retraining. Where, where do you kind of fall in that stack? Honestly, with my work, I'm a bit agnostic to the approach. I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing. Training isn't going to cut it. So let's be very, very clear there. We need conceptually just to change the foundation uh, and in practice. But in terms of whether it's defunding or whether it's abolition, honestly, what people really want, systems and protective services that they find legitimate. And when I say legitimate, that means systems that they can trust to do the right thing and to treat them well, systems that they can have confidence in to actually be effective at their goal, uh, systems that commit actions that they can approve, and systems with which they actually want to engage. That's what people want. And however a community decides to manifest that, I support them in determining that, but my goal is to see that community's needs centered. So, for example, in Minneapolis, and we're talking about that a little bit earlier, and I've worked uh, with that city for a year and a half, two years, and they dismantled the police department, the city council, or at least voted to. It'll be sent for a referendum, I think, later this year. But they took that step. And yet, a lot of people in the community had a lot of praise for a chief Medaria Arredondo. They wanted to see him play some kind of role in this new vision for public safety. But overall, whether it's dismantling the police department, whether it's defunding it, and however people choose to go about determining safety for their community, my work is in ensuring that they have that choice. And it really just takes us all the way back to some of uh, the inspirations for getting me into this work in terms of reproductive choice being able to make a decision for yourself and to be free of that violence of decisional interference, that violence of and policing what Professor Monica Bell calls concepts of legal estrangement, of not being able to ever be connected to these systems of power. Uh, I want to center communities and make sure that they are empowered. And communities are not a monolith. There are people in the community who want police gone full stop. And you can go to the neighborhoods sometimes with the lowest levels of trust, with the highest levels of violence, and you will find people, grandmothers sitting on their porch who want more police, right? There, you know, there's not one set of voices. I, me and Adam were saying we need to bring in like a historian on the 94 crime bill. Maybe <laughs> you can shed a little light, but you know, we've seen some stuff and obviously hindsight has been very fulfilling in all the ills that it brought. But I have to imagine there were some grandmothers who were going to their constituents asking for more police, right? Absolutely. This is where these things get complicated. It, it, they do. They really, really do. And I remember being in a meeting with uh, another colleague in, in the space who almost wanted to shut down that train of thought. Like, oh, well, come on, you're, you're wanting something that's bad for the community. We all know that we need less law enforcement, not more. And it's on one hand, like, yes, that is a valid perspective. It's one with which I might agree, but her perspective is valid too. And what we have to do is get to the bottom of things that seem so dissonant and actually try to find that chord that they both strike. And what that is, is that people want to feel safe. And some people 
feel that having more police around makes them feel more protected. And a lot of people feel threatened by the police. So I think the common thread there is really that everyone in the community wants to actually feel safe and to be protected by people they trust. So that involves going to people in the community, figuring out what do they want, being ready to hear some of those discrepancies and dissonance and to sit in it, to not just reject it outright, but to sit in it and to listen to it and then think, okay, well, how can we improve the system that we have? Or if we don't feel that the system is really working at all, let's scrap it. We can start from scratch, but what does that look like? And how can we ensure that this protects everyone in the community, that it enforces whatever public safety laws are necessary to do that um, in a way that's procedurally just and not violent and doesn't further tear at the fabric of communities and in a way that most people will approve of. Like that, again, it all really just goes back to legitimacy. Yeah, I, th- I think at the end of the day, even with some of the abolition people who have been the most staunch, obviously the biggest thing is, and we've talked about this, and I'm sure you've talked about this too, I mean, the reason why a lot of white people feel a certain way, especially coming from certain neighborhoods, is the police have always worked actually quite well for them. And the communities that majority that some of them are coming from are also just well-funded with more services, which are basically proactive measures to def, you know, deflate some of the other things that happen on the back end, right? So it's just like people want some more of those things. But I have to imagine most people understand that no matter how many proactive measures you have, there's always going to be something that's going to go awry at some point. We're not living in some utopia. There's, there's no perfect balance. You could do everything right and there still could be uh, a domestic you know, violence incident or something. You, you need some sort of entity to still come into play. We just don't need an absence of everything else and only uh, under-trained people running around with, with guns who <laughs> are just, you know, it, it's like, and that's what's always so frustrating. It's like, I think you know, the other side just hears something where it's even, even with the words abolition and they're like, well, they want nothing. They want lawlessness. And they're like, no, <laughs> they just want, you know, a more holistic system. And they feel like they can't get it unless the other one is totally torn down. Yeah. What comes after that tear down doesn't mean nothing. It just means we need to start afresh. And I think there's somewhere this enormous just disconnect and I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of at, at my wits end and trying to get people to listen who don't want to listen. I don't know how productive it is anyway, but um, that's, uh, I mean, that's how it is. But I really, really love, you said so many great things, but the fact that I wrote it down, you said blame the victim within all of these things is such an interesting thing. And I, I feel like I obviously as a man and within my own way, it's probably, I think more about the policing side and less about the domestic you said, and obviously you're coming in from a different way, but that the fact that you put it all together under the same lens um, with that, you know, that blaming the victim mentality and probably where there is like a, a patriarchal angle to that is a very, very fascinating. And I have to imagine people who have been listening to this, um, this is probably the first time they've thought about it in that way. Um, do you find that when, I'm assuming you've said that before, you've heard that before, that that's something that sadly kind of shocks people or it just is kind of like I should know that that makes sense but I just haven't thought about it that way I never know what will actually shock people I mean being in this space I have a very warped sense of humor I euphemistically call it 
British humor, but uh, <laughs> I, I never know what'll shock people. I know that you some, said British humor. Yes, yes. It's it's just dark enough to be most akin, at least for the, in terms of a comparison ah, okay. uh, to the kind of gallows humor that I'm used to on my job. So I never know what's actually shocking. I feel like there's a big Jamaican diaspora in England. Oh yeah. It's actually incorporated in the slang. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, just going back to, to the question. Uh, there are some realities, like statistically, that will shock people. For example, that over a third of women in the U.S. will experience intimate partner violence. Not a lot of people know that. Uh, not a lot of people know that only half of women ever even report to law enforcement. And that oftentimes only after the seventh instance of violence. Uh, there are a lot of stats I could rattle off that are shocking, sure. But in terms of conceptual framing, I think many, it's not just people who are outside of this space who I think don't necessarily see the connections between gender-based violence and police violence and racial trauma and gun violence. I think a lot of people here still are still trying to figure out what those different connections mean. So, for example, gender-based violence is often used as a reason for why certain criminal justice reforms can't take place because there's this thrust, well, what about the victim? What are they going to do? And there are a lot of resources that the criminal justice system brings to the process, for sure. But there's also a lot of inherent harm. It's like going into a major surgery. You cannot, you're not going to come out without a scar. Best case scenario they got what they needed to out of you and fixed it, but you're still going to be left with, you're still going to be left with some kind of damage. There's no way out of it. So even the best uses of the criminal justice system are unfortunately going to cause harm. And oftentimes it's overused. So there's that to consider. Um, overall with, with gender-based violence, when, you know, when people try to use the criminal justice system as a reason why we can't, or use gender-based violence as a reason why we can't change the criminal justice system, it reflects a lack of understanding about how these different traumas and harms actually overlap. So I think if more people can, this is, this is my bias. This is my, my master's in gender studies trying to, trying to take over a uh, future for future conversations. But if people can think about these issues through a racial lens, through a gender lens, we'll start to see some of the overlaps in interpersonal harm and institutional harm. And I think we'll, be better at finding solutions, right? It's not all the answers lie with advocates and with special victims units and not all the answers lie with abolitionists. I think it's the more that people talk to each other and understand where they're coming from, the more they'll understand about where they need to go and how they could maybe get there together. I think that was a perfect way to wrap it up. Daniil, uh, really amazing having you. Is there any last things that you want to drop on people, any websites, any books that they should read, any, anything we can further educate the peoples? For sure. I, oof, where do I even start? Uh, so website, National Network for Safe Communities is where I work now. And a lot of the stuff that I was talking about with reconciliation can be found there. Uh, if you're struggling to find the website, uh, we're connected with John Jay College of Criminal Justice. It's all a mouthful. But if you just search, you'll, uh, you'll be able to find a lot of the resources to dive deeper into what I was talking about. Uh, in terms of books, 
specific ones. I mentioned a few when I was talking, but also a good friend of mine, John Rapping, uh, is the founder of Gideon's Promise, a, an organization based in Atlanta to empower public defenders. Uh, has just recently published a book that I am excited to read. It's over here on my desk. Let's see. Gideon's Promise. Yeah, that's also just the name of the book. So there you go. Keep it simple. Uh, <laughs> and let's see, anything else? I think the biggest thing that I just like to leave people with is one, read up on issues for yourself and don't just accept the sound bites. We're all guilty of it, but there's no easy way to move forward with these kinds of topics and conversations without just reading and being okay with an unpopular opinion. I guarantee somebody else also has it. And if you don't like that other person or why they have that opinion, then it challenges you to interrogate your own and you just continually grow and evolve and just listen, 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 listen. Even when you disagree, it's so important to understand what people are saying, why they disagree. And we should never normalize certain behavior and certain forms of violence and discrimination. But I think we need to all understand why it happens to make sure that it doesn't happen again, right? So humanizing each other without normalizing bad behavior and without normalizing some of the hatred and, uh, and bigotry that unfortunately has just been so much a part of, <laughs> so much a part of, uh, I, would it be political if I named a number of years? But in any case, um, yeah, <laughs> just, just be willing to learn and listen and uh, think we'll be surprised by what we can actually manage to do together. Learn, listen, don't read the short cliff notes. Read the real stuff. Be informed. Word. I think that's uh read that's why read books. Knowledge. Not just articles are good. Read books. <laughs> just books. Like just read a book. Like read books. Just do that. And and shout out history majors. Oh hell yes. yeah. History, history majors are back. They're back. I'm gonna have to send this to my mentor from professor. He'll be so happy. <laughs> He was my history advisor. <laughs> nice. We got to get him on the pod. The four of us will go. We'll, we'll, go, we'll, we'll jam out. <laughs> we love it. We love it. All right, everyone. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Peace.